everybody to the LSE and to the Forum for European Philosophy. Um, this is the first event in the spring term or Lent term. I'm glad to see all of you here again. My name is Christina Musold. I'm the Deputy Director of the Forum and also a Fellow in the Philosophy Department here. And it's my pleasure tonight to introduce to you my colleague, Joseph Mazor. I hope I pronounced that that's, right. That's correct. <laughs> um, who will be talking about... Um, male-infant circumcision. Now, as you're probably all aware, this is quite a controversial topic. In fact, it has been controversial throughout history, really. Um, but it seems to me, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that in the recent few months, um, the controversy has become particularly heated, perhaps, um, partly due to, I think, a court ruling which was issued in Cologne in Germany by uh, a court that ruled that Circumcision was inflicting bodily harm on boys too young to consent and um, arguing that the practice contravenes the interests of the child to decide later in life on his religious beliefs. Now, it's important to note that this decision um, applied only within the jurisdiction of that court and also, interestingly, a few months later, in December 2012, um, the German Bundestag uh, adopted a new law explicitly permitting uh, non-theoretic circumcision to be performed under certain conditions. Um, but nonetheless, it seems to me that since this sort of court ruling was issued, the, the debate has been sort of heated and a lot of people have been making a case, mostly I think against the practice perhaps. Um, Joseph today will be talking in favour of the practice. Um, I should also perhaps say this, that this is, um, while it's one of his research interests he has, many other research interests, um, in particular in political philosophy, philosophy and public policy, philosophy of economics and environmental ethics. So um, check out that work as well. And for those of you who have smartphones, um, Twitter, etc., I just wanted to mention that the hashtag for this event is LSE Mazor, if you want to tweet along. And also if you want to follow uh, philosophy events at LSE on Twitter, you see we're all getting very modern and uh, technological and so on. Uh, we have a Twitter account which is called LSE Philosophy if you want to keep updated on other events that are coming up. And so on. Um, I also want to note that this event will be recorded on audio. There will be a podcast made available later on the website for those of you who want to listen to it again or maybe want to make it available to other people who weren't able to attend tonight. Um, and with that, I'll hand over to Joseph and look forward to his talk. He will be talking for about 60 minutes and then we'll have 30 minutes for discussion. Can yes, can people please silence their mobile phones as well? Thank you for that. Okay, <laughs> thanks. Great. Well, thanks, Christina, and thank you all for coming. Um, so, as Christina said, I'm going to be talking today uh, about the case for the permissibility of male infant circumcision. Um, so, uh, just a little bit of background, and actually Christina covered a lot of what I, I was going to uh, cover. Um, circumcision has recently been under legal threat. Uh, there was a court ruling in Germany that Christina mentioned. And also there's a ballot initiative in San Francisco that tried to make uh, circumcision illegal in the bounds of, of the city. Um, basically, both have been overturned, the, case, the, the German court case by the German parliament, and in San Francisco, the court ruled that the city can't regulate uh, medical procedures in that way. Um, but I think that the debate is really bound to continue um, for the next, over the next uh, years, for sure. Um, circumcision, just a little bit of, of empirical background, and I'm not an expert on the empirical, on the, all the empirical details of this in any, by any means, but just a few, a few facts 
Um, circumcision rates in countries like the United States are actually quite high, uh, not only among religious, religious populations, uh, but also among people in general. So in 2005, about 56% of male newborns were circumcised in the U.S. Uh, prior to their release from the hospital. Um, so in, in many, many parents in the U.S. are circumcising their children uh, for non-religious reasons. Um, and uh, also, uh, of, uh, of course, both in the U.S. and in other countries, a significant number of circumcisions are done in religious, uh, for religious reasons. Um, Israel and many of the Muslim countries have very, very high rates of circumcisions, as do countries with large Muslim and Jewish populations. Um, so circumcision has often been defended by appealing to the religious liberty of the parents. I'm going to actually uh, focus on the case of the permissibility of circumcision without appealing to this consideration. So here, the, I, I'm going to defend two main conclusions in this uh, talk. Uh, the first is that any analysis of circumcision must involve a careful balancing of the interests of the child, rather than simply an appeal to rights. And actually, the court case that Christina talk, was talking about, if you actually read the court case, really it talks about the rights of the child, and it doesn't talk a lot about the various interests the child has. Uh, the child has and various, various health consequences, etc. It, it really appeals to rights, and I want, want to argue that, that that's actually a mistake. Um, and the second uh, main conclusion that I want to argue for is that circumcision falls within the range of reasonable disagreement um, regarding what's in the best interest of the child. And I think that, that that's true in the secular case, and in, in the case of parents who aren't circumcising their, their ch child for religious reasons. And I think it's especially true, and I'm going to explain why, in the religious case, uh, in the case of Muslim and, and, and uh, Jewish parents who are, who are thinking of circumcising their child. So let me begin by talking about the, the rights-based arguments uh, in, in circumcision, and I'm going to be arguing against using rights as trumps in the circumcision debate, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. So um, there are two key rights that are cited in the German court case. The first is the right to bodily integrity, and the second is the right to self-determination. Um, but what are rights precisely, and how do they arise in this case? Um, I'm not going to actually answer that question. That's a very, very complicated question. There, there are countless theories of what rights are, and there's also countless theories of what, uh, what justifies them. Um, but I will focus on one theory that I think is particularly influential, um, and that's uh, Ronald Workin's view that rights are trumps. And what that means is that uh, if there's a right involved in, a, involved in a particular situation, that right overrules mere interests. So the mere interests uh, that the parents have to... Uh, you might argue that the parents uh, only have an interest in raising their child in a particular way, and if you show that the child has a right, that, that right is going to trump that interest. Uh, more generally, if there's a right in a situation, it, it trumps considerations of broader social welfare. And I'll give a couple examples of that in a moment. Um, so if the child, in, in the circumcision case, has the right to bodily integrity, that, in a sense, can foreclose the debate if, unless you can show that there are other rights involved. And I think that this is a mistake, basically. Um, so let me start by focusing on the right to bodily integrity. So let me ask you, let me ask you uh, the audience, a question. Um, would you cut off one person's arm in order to save... 100,000 people from the common cold, from just one instance of the common cold. How many people would cut off a person's arm in order to save 100,000 people um, from the common cold? Any, by a show of hands, anybody who wants to do this? 
Okay, and, and actually, if I, increase, if I increase this, now this is the kind of thought experiment that philosophers love to do, right? Um, so, uh, and if I increase this number from 100,000 uh, to a higher number, I, I would imagine that most people in the room still wouldn't raise their hands. And what, what this suggests is that um, one thing that you could take away from this, it's not the only conclusion, um, is that the person with the arm has a right to bodily integrity, and that right trumps the arguably greater social benefit of curing 100,000 people from a cold. I mean, if you really think about what it means for 100,000 people to avoid the misery of a cold, it's not completely implausible to think that that actually, if you add up the welfare or the, the utility or whatever, whatever you, you think in terms, however you define benefits, if you add up the benefit of that, you might argue that that's actually greater than the benefit uh, that the person who with the arm would lose if we cut off their arm. Uh, and if, especially if I increase this number, and then it seems like it would be wrong to cut off the person's arm for, uh, to, to save 100,000 people from a cold. And one reason why that might be is that there might be a right, understood as a trump in this case, um, to bodily integrity. So I don't want to deny that there is such a thing as a right to bodily integrity. But what, I want, what I'm going to try to argue is that it's not going to apply to the baby. And let me, let me explain why that is. So doesn't the baby also have a right as a trump to bodily integrity, right? This is what the, what the, one of the things that the German court was arguing. Um, so you could argue no, so you can try to make a case against this by pointing to vaccines, right? We do vaccinate children, and it seems like we violate their bodily integrity when we inject them with this vaccine. But that, I think that that's not particularly convincing because you could say that the child has a right to health, right? The right to avoid the terrible disease, and that right actually balances out the right to bodily integrity. So the example of vaccines is probably not such a great example, um, for, for the reasons that I just stated. But let's think about the following example. Um, think about the case of cleft lips. So um, some babies are actually born with clefts. There's, there's obviously very extreme cases of cleft where it's sort of uh, really very extreme and has significant health consequences. But there are actually babies that are born with clefts that are so minor that even though they have a significant appearance effect, they act, there's actually no purely medical reason for correcting for addressing the cleft. The baby would lead a perfectly normal life in, in terms of medical, medically, they would lead a perfectly normal life, even if we didn't address the cleft. Um, so just by a show of hands, how many people think it's okay for the parents to decide to have an operation to correct uh, this cleft? Okay, so almost everybody uh, is really raised their hand in this case. Um, so if the interest of the child is... Um, in correcting the cleft is basically avoiding teasing at school and also uh, their interest in certain type of uh, physical appearance, that doesn't seem to rise to the level of a right. So if we think that the child really has a right to uh, bodily integrity understood as a trump, then this cleft lip case is sort of, sort of interesting. Why should the parents be able to, uh, to have this operation, right? Um, and so what's going on here? How do we explain this? Well, what I'm going to suggest is that the right to bodily integrity is fundamentally a right against having our bodies used as a social resource, as having our, our bodies used as means for, benefit, for benefiting others. So in the case of cutting off a person's arms to cure 100,000 people from a cold, the body is sort of used to create a kind of social benefit. And in this case, I think there's actually a strong case to make that, no, we have a right understood as a trump to our bodily integrity, when, when, when society tries to use our bodies as a social resource. But what's interesting in the case of the circumcision is that um, the, the parents aren't saying, I want to use 
the, the infant's body in any way for, as a social resource. Rather, they're saying we want to perform this operation for the child's own good, right? And so when the, uh, and of course it's controversial whether it's for the child's own good, but the point is when uh, there's violations of bodily integrity for, uh, ostensibly for the sake of the child himself, that's not a case where there's a right as a trump. The right as a trump is really a way of preventing people from being used as social resources, uh, the people's bodies from being used as social resources, and that's not what's happening in this debate. So I think applying this right to bodily integrity um, to this uh, situation is really actually a mistake. Um, so what's the upshot of this? Well, we can't just apply uh, the appeal to the right of bodily integrity to, to shut down the debate. Instead, we're going to have to consider the interests of the child, right? We can't appeal to this right as a trump. Um, right. Um, and and I, I fully concede that one of the interests of the child is bodily integrity. What I'm denying is that bodily integrity is a right that can serve as a trump to all the other interest considerations that, are, that arise in the situation. So let me move on to the second right, which is the right to, to self-determination. That's the other main right that the court raises. And in fact, this is also a right that's uh, familiar from the political philosophy literature. So here's a quote from actually my favorite political philosopher, John Stuart Mill. And uh, this is from On Liberty. Um, the only purpose for which a power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others. His own good, either physical or moral, is not a sufficient warrant. The only part of the conduct of anyone for which he is amenable to society is that which harms others. The part which, is merely, which merely concerns himself, his independence of right is absolute. Over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. So this, here Mill defends a very strong right to self-determination. Right? Unless you harm others, society cannot interfere with you, even for your own good, and even, even if other people think that this is something that's, that's, that they want for you to do or something that's good for you. You have a right to self-determination, on Mill's view. And many, many political philosophers have developed uh, Mill's arguments further. So, um, why does a person have a right to self-determination? There's, there's many answers to this question, but two reasons are, um, that people have raised is that uh, giving people a right to self-determination in this way provides a certain type of respect for their autonomous will, for their ability to give a law onto themselves, really, and to this, and, um, uh, in, in this type of sort of... Uh, Kantian way, or, or there's, there's a lot of ways you could go with this. Um, the second, uh, the second uh, route that people have taken is that, in general, sort of a, a different type of defense of the right to self-determination. In general, individual, uh, individuals know uh, their own good better than anyone else. And so individuals should be able to choose what, what's done with their body and their life. It's, as a general rule... Uh, the individual knows what's best for them better than the government, and so we should, unless a person is harming somebody else, we should let the person decide what's, what's for their own good. Um, so most political philosophers, I should, I should say right away, actually reject an absolute right to self-determination. So you're forced to wear seatbelts. Uh, just, uh, you know, there's many reasons why you might be, but many people argue that you're forced to wear seatbelts for your own good, even if you don't want to, right? The government can force you to wear seatbelts. Um, but even those political theories that reject paternalism, that really accept a strong right to self-determination, don't defend the right to self-determination when it comes to children. Um, uh, no one supports letting children decide, making decisions for themselves always as a, as a right. 
Um, no, nor does anybody, no political philosopher that I know of, insist on waiting until children reach majority for all of their decisions. Um, and why not? Well, let's, let me give an example. Um, so does punishing a child for refusing to do her math homework violate her right to self-determination? Well, why not wait until she reaches majority, when she reaches 18, and then let her decide whether she wants to learn maths or not, right? I mean, she doesn't she have a right to decide whether she wants to learn maths or not? Uh, shouldn't we just wait? Well, the problem is that the cost of learning basic maths when you're 18 are much, much higher than the cost of learning basic maths when you're not, right? So, um, if, we, if we, we can't actually give the child the same choice that's facing the parents, right? The choice of learning maths at 18 is very different than the choice of learning basic maths at 9. And so it's difficult to argue that the child always has a right to decide for herself when she reaches majority, even for decisions that are quite important. Uh, first of all, as a child, she doesn't have fully autonomous will. And second, forcing the parents to wait is not necessarily in the best interest of the child because the decisions at 18 are different than the decision at 9. Um, and again, and I would apply this to the case of circumcision. We just cannot give the infant the same choice that is currently facing the parents once he becomes an adult. Why not? Well, the costs of adult circumcision are just significantly higher than the cost of child circumcision, and the benefits are smaller in terms of some of the medical benefits, and I'll talk about that in a moment. So uh, when you compare adult circumcision to child circumcision, the risks of medical complications are, are significantly higher. There's anticipatory dread, right? I mean, I, I was circumcised as a baby, so I wouldn't know this, but I would imagine if I was, had to be circumcised as an adult, there would be a couple weeks beforehand where I was really dreading the operation, and that would be quite unpleasant. There's disruption to life. Uh, you can't have sex or engage in any sexual activity for a long time. It's a significant operation, etc. Um, also, there's a change to what we're used to, uh, that you don't have to deal with when you, if you've always uh, been circumcised, right? Um, and all of these costs are much higher when you're an adult, basically, than when you're a child. So just like in the case of the maths example, we can't give the child the same choice that's facing the parent. Um, and so what the upshot is, what I would suggest the upshot is that there is no right as a trump to self-determination in the case of circumcision. Um, again, this suggests that we, we're going to need to carefully consider the interests of the child, including the, but, but including the child's significant interest in self-determination. I'm not saying that the child does not have an interest in self-determination. What I'm saying is we can't just say this, the child has a right to self-determination, that's the end of the debate, right? And, and actually I think uh, what, the court, what the German court did is it did consider the right of the parents to religious liberty briefly, but it just basically uh, said that that was really the only consideration that's weighing against uh, these two rights, the right to bodily integrity and the right to self-determination. And what I'm trying to argue is that we can't understand these, we should understand these as interests, but not as rights, where rights are understood as trumps. So if we're not going to uh, look to, into uh, rights as trumps, we're going to have to actually analyze the interests of the child in this case. And so let me give a, a quick summary what, of what I see as the main interests of the child in this case, although this is not an exhaustive list. This is really the, the list that I'm going to focus on today. Um, so uh, if we circumcise the, the, in, the infant boy, um, we're going to have a violation of the, of the child's interest in bodily integrity. We're going to have a violation of their interest in self-determination. Um, we're going to have a possibly an expected uh, slight decline in sexual pleasure. And I put that as a question mark, both because it's empirically unclear if that's uh, going to happen, and also because it's not, I'm not 100% I'm not sure that that's a cost, but I'll talk about that in a moment. 
Um, we have uh, pain, and that's important, but it's much less significant if uh, anesthesia is used, which I, I fully advocate. Um, uh, there's also uh, risks of medical complication if we have circumcision, uh, from the circumcision as well as an increase in urethritis. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm not a, I'm not a medical expert. Um, if we don't circumcise, the, what, what, what about if we don't circumcise the infant boy? Um, well, there's a, a list, a, a long list of, uh, well, not a long list, but a, a list of, of uh, significant, very serious medical problems that, that you basically have a smaller chance of if you're circumcised. And this is controversial, but, um, but this is what I, I take to be, um, at least uh, some people uh, agree that this is true in the medical literature. Um, there's HIV. People are sort of familiar with the, the, the benefits of circumcision uh, in terms of sexually transmitted diseases. It's sort of, sort of still an ongoing uh, literature, but there's certainly evidence that suggests that this is true. Um, general ulcer disease, and actually quite significantly severe, severe forms of penile cancer are much, much less common in circumcised uh, boys versus non-circumcised boys. Um, there's also a slight increase in, in minor medical problems, uh, urinary, urinary tract infections, etc. But you can actually solve most of those with proper hygiene. Of course, not everybody practices ha- proper hygiene, so um, this is a problem. And uh, there's also the extra, if we don't circumcise the boy when he's an infant, there's extra cost that the boy is going to have to bear if he chooses to become circumcised as an adult. Um, and I've talked about why adult circumcision is more uh, costly in various ways than child circumcision. Let me just make a few comments on these interests. So much of this is taken from um, an article called Between Prophylaxis and Child Abuse, the Ethics of Neonatal uh, Male Circumcision by Benatar and Benatar and the the American Journal of Bioethics. And I'm I'm not in a position to evaluate their summary of the medical evidence. I'm a political philosopher, not a doctor. Um, Also, I should say that one, one really important interest that I think was left off the list is the child's interest in looking like others. Um... Uh, his peers, his father. Um, this is a, actually this is an important interest, but I think it's going to differ in different different countries, and also it's going to actually depend itself on the policy we take towards circumcision. And so, um, I, for for a variety of reasons, I think we can actually do most of the analysis, even leaving this out. But I'm happy to talk about it more um, in question and answer. So, um, before I get to try to balancing these interests, there's a natural question that might come up, which is. Look, why don't we just look at what adults do once they're adults and use that as a guide to, to telling us whether it's in the best interest of the child to become circumcised? Um, and actually, if we look at the figures, if you look at a place like Finland or, or other, other European countries without a large Jewish or Muslim population, um, there's a relatively small percentage of those who are not circumcised as children who become circumcised as adults. Now, the figures vary uh, fairly widely, but something around between basically 1% and 7% seems to be the consensus that I found um, in, in my research. Um, but, I mean, again, I think that that's, I, I'm not, I'm, I don't hold, that, that's not a, a strong part of my argument in any case. Uh, among, among non-Jewish and non-Muslim men, the percentage is even smaller. And so doesn't this suggest, right, if so many adults are not getting circumcised, doesn't this suggest that circumcision is not really in the child's best interest? If people who are fully rational uh, don't, don't decide to do it? Um, I don't think so. Um, I don't think that this, this really is strong evidence for us. Um, again, the first reason is, again, the cost of adult circumcision are just much higher than the cost of infant circumcision. Also, I think that many adults uh, have a profound lack of information about uh, the benefits and costs of circumcision. 
Um, so, um, yeah, and then there's also a, a, a wide variety of biases. So if you're not circumcised, um, and you're sort of, you know, you, you come to this lecture and you're like, oh, there's, there's a risk of penile cancer. Um, there's a, a large status quo bias that uh, psychologists have, have studied for a long time. There's a, a kind of present bias uh, that, that psychologists have also studied. The costs of, taking, of addressing the problem are very much in the present. The benefits in terms of reducing your risk of penile cancer are very much in the future and very much uncertain. And so there's a lot of biases that uh, arise in this decision. And so for all these reasons, I don't think we can say, look, adults aren't being circumcised, therefore it must not be in the best interest of the child. I think we're going to have to, unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on where you, you, you sit, we're going to have to uh, evaluate the, child interest, the child's interests ourselves. So how do we balance interests? Well, Benatar and Benatar, uh, evaluating the medical risks and the pain, argue that on balance, they look at the probabilities of all these of penile cancer and HIV, and they look at the probabilities of the complications, etc. And what they say is that on balance, uh, the, 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 the balance tilts slightly in favor of circumcision, from a medical perspective that includes pain. Uh, I'm not going to challenge that conclusion here. I'm going to sort of take it as given. Um, but certainly, certainly we can talk about that in, in question and answer. Um, but I think that they, the, the analysis is incomplete in an important way because they don't consider the, the child's interest in bodily integrity. They don't consider the child's interest in avoiding a reduction in sexual pleasure. And they don't consider the child's interest, I think most importantly, they don't consider the child's interest in self-determination. Um, so I want to spend some time considering these last two interests in particular. So let me start with the reduction of sexual pleasure. Um, the empirical evidence on whether a circumcision reduces sexual pleasure is actually not conclusive. Uh, and I think even if we have conclusive evidence about what happens to adult men who have circumcision, we can't really infer from that necessarily what's going to happen to, children, to uh, infants who have circumcision. But given the number of nerve endings in the foreskin, it's not completely implausible to assume uh, that in expectation, uh, circumcision slightly reduces sexual pleasure. And I'm going to assume this both because I think it's not implausible and also because I think it's, philosoph it's a philosophically interesting assumption to make. Um, so is the reduction of sexual pleasure a harm? I think the answer is not as obvious as it might seem. So let me, let me give another thought experiment uh, for you to think about. So imagine that the parents have an option of carrying out a non-invasive, painless procedure that slightly reduces the pleasure that their children receive from eating sweets uh, over their lives, right? So you can, you can do this to your child, you slightly reduce the pleasure that they get from eating sweets. Would this be harmful? Well, I think if, the, if you hold the child's behavior constant, it probably is harmful, it, it almost surely is harmful. Pleasure is a nice thing. Uh, it's certainly, it seems like it's one aspect of a flourishing life. Um, but the point is that perhaps the behavior would change if the child got less pleasure from eating sweets. And although it's not completely obvious in which direction the behavioral change would be, uh, you might think that, that, that less pleasure from sweets would mean the child eating less sweets relative to other foods over the course of his life. Uh, this, could lower, this could have a variety of beneficial effects. It could lower the risk of diabetes, obesity, etc. Um, of course, wholly, wholly eliminating the pleasure from sweets would be a pretty serious harm, I would think. I mean, you wouldn't have the, the sublime enjoyment of an ice cream cone on a hot summer's day, for example. Um, but I think slightly reducing the pleasure from eating sweets is not obviously a harm, all things considered. The broader point that, I wanna, that I'm trying to make is that the physical pleasure triggers that we are born with are not necessarily those that are optimally, optimally suited to our own flourishing. 
Um, they're not even suited to our survival, right, given current social, social conditions. There's sort of the product of a certain type of evolutionary process. Uh, and we may have lived in a society where sweets was important to get as many calories as you can, but we, we no longer, luckily, live in, in such a society. And so actually getting pleasure from sweets is not as good as it once was for us. Um, why should we think that pleasure from sexual activity relative to other pleasures that we're just born with is optimal for our flourishing? I think to think this, that it's ap- exactly optimal, is to fall victim to a kind of naturalistic fallacy. I, don't, I, I just don't see why it would be the case that the pleasures that we're born with are precisely optimal for our flourishing. Um, and, and I'll go further to say that it's not unreasonable to believe that a slight reduction in sexual pleasure might, all things considered, actually foster our flourishing. Um, so Maimonides, a famous Jewish uh, scholar, argued that circumcision reduces excessive lust in a way that's conducive to a life of Aristotelian moderation. Uh, and this is in the Guide to the Perplexed. I just, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not sure what I think about this, but I, 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 think that, I think that it's not unreasonable to have this kind of view, basically. Um, I should say that the evidence on the behavioral effects of circumcision is certainly not conclusive. Um, but again, I, don't, I just don't think it's obviously unreasonable to think that a slight reduction in sexual pleasure will be, actually be better for the child's flourishing, all things considered. Given how high sexual pleasure is on our list of, of pleasures, you know, given evolution, it's not surprising that this is a really high pleasure, right, relative to other pleasures. And it's not clear to me that it's actually optimal for our flourishing. Okay, uh, let me turn next to the interest in self-determination, which I think is actually the more important interest. Um, so you might think that the key argument is not the sexual pleasure argument, but rather that the child should be able to decide for himself, right, what's to be done with his penis, right? It's a very sort of simple and, I mean, straightforward argument, right? I mean, this is a key part of your body. Uh, you should be able to decide for yourself what is done with it. Um, so, although I, I've argued that self-determination is not a right, I still think it's, a, I think, I still think it's an important interest, but I want to argue that it's not as important as it first appears. So, um, how great our interest in, in, being, in being able to, to make choices for ourselves depends on a lot of things. First of all, how important the, the relevant decision is in our lives. And I also want to suggest that it depends on how rational the decision is and how well-informed the decision is. So, um, basically, the less rational and well-informed the decision is, I think the less... Uh, the, the, there's two reasons why a less rational and less well-informed decision is not so important for self-determination. Um, first, it's less likely to lead to our flourishing. And second, I think arguably a less informed and less rational decision, the less uh, well-informed and rational decision is, the less plausible it is to say that we're the authors of our own lives when we make that decision. If I sort of don't really know what I'm doing, or I sort of am some all sorts of irrationality, am I really being uh, the author of my own life, which is, which is a value that many philosophers have thought is, is important in allowing us to make our own decisions. So I've already argued that uh, the male decision uh, to uh, become circumcised is subject to a variety of biases. And I've also argued that the decision is not particularly well-informed. Just by a show of hands out of curiosity, I mean, this is sort of a self-selecting audience in, a, in, a, in some ways, but how many of you knew that, the risk, that circumcision reduces the risk of severe penile cancer? By a show of hands, how many people knew that? Okay, and this is a fairly, this, the people who come to this talk are not a random sample of the population, obviously. But only a few people raise their hand, nevertheless. And I just, I just think the average uncircumcised male is just, you know, quite not particularly well informed about the various costs and benefits. And so, again, the, the upshot of this is that it's not as important to allow the, uh, the, the, the man to make the own, his own decision. It's not as important. 
Uh, furthermore, I want to argue that the decision is also subject to a different type of lack of information, which is that the uncircumcised man just does not know how it will feel to be circumcised. And what I mean by feel is both in terms of daily activities and also in terms of sexual pleasure. And, and, and just from you know, my research reading the blogs on circumcision, the question of how will it feel to be circumcised is a central consideration in the decision to become circumcised. Men who are sort of experiencing problems with their foreskin are constantly asking this question, how will it feel, you know? Um, and the problem is you just can't know. You can't take off your foreskin for a day and see how it feels. And also, the experience seems to be quite variable, so you can't really rely on other people's experiences in making this decision. So here's an analogy. So imagine that you walk into a restaurant and find out that the acquaintance that you've met has already pre-ordered a particular meal for you. I think this is much less problematic if you're in a foreign country where you only have a vague idea of what the different dishes taste like. And similarly, I think that if, since the person doesn't know uh, how circumcision will feel and has a lot of other mis- uh, sort of lack of information and the subject to decision subject to all sorts of biases, the interest the person have, has in the man has in making that decision for himself is just not as large as some other decisions, even though I do think that it's a very important area, obviously. So again, I'm, not, I'm certainly not claiming that there's no interest in self-determination, but what I'm claiming is that the, the interest in self-determination is not as important as it might first appear. Okay, let me turn to balancing the interest in the secular case. And what I mean by the secular case is really the non-Jewish, non-Muslim case, the case of where there's no religious imperative to, uh, to have a circumcision for the child, and I'll get back to the religious case in a moment. Um, so, again, Benatar and Benatar argue that in terms of the medical, uh, medical issues and pain, there's a slight, advan- slight advantage in terms of um, uh, to, to having a circumcision, assuming that local anesthetic is used. Um, I think that the effects of a, lo- a slight reduction in sexual pleasure and a flourishing life are actually unclear. Um, the interest in bodily integrity and self-determination, I concede, weigh significantly against circumcision. Um, uh, and, and in addition, uh, fairly few parent, uh, children born to secular parents end up getting circumcised, so avoiding the extra costs of adult circumcision is actually fairly minor. So where does this leave us? Um, so first let me just consider the, this sort of a very special case, a ward of the state, right? A child who's an orphan for some reason who's a ward of the state. Um, here, it's completely the, the state's responsibility to make a decision. And actually, if you asked me, I would probably argue that the state should not circumcise this child. Um, I think, if anything, the balance of interest that I've gone through actually tilts slightly against circumcision, having, having thought about the issue. Um, but I think it's slight. Um, and I think the, the, the main point that I would make is that the balance of interest is nowhere near the point at which a state can rightly overrule the judgment of the parent if they choose circumcision. Basically, if you think about what parents are allowed to do with their child in a variety of ways, we give the parents quite a large leeway on what they can do with their child. Um, uh, and I think that this, this falls, this decision, having given the, the balance of interest, I think that this falls quite clearly within the purview of a, a parental, the parental prerogative to decide what's best for the child. I mean, if you ask me if I were a secular parent would I have my child circumcised? I'd probably say no. I actually value self-determination, the interest, my child's interest in self-determination quite a bit, and I would probably say no, I wouldn't do it. But I don't think that it's unreasonable to think that it's for the benefit of the child, given the medical evidence. There's reasonable disagreement about uh, costs and health, 
costs and benefits and how to balance them. There's also reasonable disagreement about the existence and the effects of a reduction, a reduction in sexual pleasure. And the state should only interfere in parental decisions when there's a clear-cut, no pun intended, cases of harm. I really didn't mean for that until I just saw that. I was like, okay. Um, on balance, I think on balance, um, circumcision may well be... Uh, sorry. Circumcision may well not be in the best interest of the secular child. But the balance seems to me to be clearly in the, in the realm of reasonable disagreement, given all of the uncertainties that I've talked about. Not only uncertainties about the health benefits and costs, but also the uncertainties about how to balance those benefits relative to other considerations. Um, thus, I think it would be, even in the case of the secular child, it would be wrong for the state to outlaw circumcision. Let me now turn to the case of the just Jewish or Muslim boy um, and into uh, talking about that. Because um, I think they actually, it, there's, a, there's a very important difference, set of differences in the, in the case of the Jewish and Muslim boy that doesn't actually have to do with the parents' right to religious, to exercise their religious freedom. So let me, how, how does the balance change in the religious case? Again, I'm not going to consider the parents' religious freedom. Uh, and I'm also, there's actually a lot of uh, really interesting issues if you sort of start thinking about this uh, that arise, right? You might imagine that for some children, uh, making circumcision illegal will force the practice underground where it's less safe, right? This is a similar argument to what's made in the abortion debate. Um, I think that's a really interesting factor to consider, and it's certainly not implausible to me that that would happen, uh, which would make the circumcision even less safe uh, than it is. Um, you, might, you might actually also think of the case where the parents would actually leave the society, and if you're really thinking about the, the interests of the child, what kind of effects that might have on a child when their parents are forced to leave a society in order to avoid a, a ban on circumcision. Um, I mean, I think that that's an interesting case to think about, even if it only might af- af- affect a small number of children. But I'm not going to focus on those issues, actually. Uh, instead, I want to focus on a different key point, which is, I think is really important, and, and, and it's, I haven't seen it enough uh, in, the, in the literature. And this, this is the key point, I think. The, the, the Jewish or Muslim child, the child of Jewish or Muslim parents, is much more likely than the secular child to choose to become circumcised as an adult if he's not circumcised as a child. So most children who grow up in Jewish and Muslim households will remain Jewish or Muslim. This is just a, a fact. I don't, it's sort of complicated to get figures, and it depends on what kind of Judaism you mean, what kind of Islam do you mean. But it's a general fact that children who grow up in a re- particular religion, stay. most of them stay in that particular religion. And actually circumcision, furthermore, circumcision is actually quite central in Islam and is incredibly central in Judaism. So in the Sunnah, um, the, the, uh, the Muhammad states that circumcision is a law for men and a preservation of honor for women. I am just getting this from the BBC website. I'm not actually an expert on Islam in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and in addition, uh, the Torah, um, the Jewish, the, the, the Hebrew Bible, um, states that uh, any, or part of the Hebrew Bible states that any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This cut-off uh, idea is a very stringent uh, consequence for breaking of a law that only applies in very limited set of circumstances. Circumcision is really central for Judaism. And the, the, the reason I'm bringing this up is, again, not to talk about the religious freedom of the parents, but rather to suggest that if the child of, of Jewish parents and Muslim parents is not circumcised, they themselves would choose to become circumcised as adults. And actually, there's a lot of cases of converts, etc., where this happens. 
So this has two consequence, consequences in terms of our analysis. Um, so first, I think it would significantly decreases uh, the, the violation of the rights of self-determination. So basically, the more likely you are to choose A over B, the less I violate your interest in self-determination when I choose option A for you. Of course, people actually do have an interest in making the choice for themselves. I mean, I don't deny that. But what I'm arguing is that if you're going to choose uh, the, the chicken parmesan anyway, if I order it for, if I know you, and I know, I know that you're 99% sure to choose a chicken parmesan, it's not as much of a violation of your interest in self-determination as, if, as in the case where I don't know what you're going to pick, if I, if I basically pre-order that for you. Uh, and second, the, second thing, the second way that it changes the calculus is that the expected value of the reduction in the additional costs of adult circumcision are much higher. Basically because so many of these Jewish and Muslim children's would, would, children would choose to become circumcised anyway, we're really benefiting them in a much greater sense than in the secular case because for many more of them, we're going to prevent them from having to go through the ordeal of adult circumcision, um, which they're going to do anyway. Okay, but you might say, well, what about the, non, not the child who grows up in a religious uh, Jewish or Muslim home and who becomes not religious an adult? Of course, not all children who grow up to religious parents, parents will become religious adults. And some, I think there's a minority, if you look on the internet, you'll find some, some of uh, these individuals, uh, will feel as though uh, they've been branded by a religion that they detest, right? There are some people like this. Um, others, if you sort of just abandon the religion but don't have like a, a, a deep hostility to it, um, you might just simply be disappointed about a reduction in sexual pleasure or about how your penis looks, or you might be angry that you weren't given a choice. And I think that this, is, this can happen to a lot of people also. Uh, how do we respond to the objections of the circumcised non-religious adult that grew up in a Jewish and Muslim home? Well, I think that what we would say is, look, it was just much more likely that you, as a child, would have turned out to be religious. And if that were the case, we would have saved you, if you had turned out to be religious, we would have saved you a lot of pain and suffering by, having you, by allowing you to be circumcised as a baby. Um, and so the state, I think, can say that, look, it, it acted in what seemed to be like your best interest at the time, although admittedly, for you in particular, it turned out to not be in your best interest to have, to, 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 uh, have having been circumcised. Notice, I think that it's, it's important to note, make a really important note here, which is, I don't think it's, as a general matter, it's not okay to sacrifice the key interests of one person um, to, to save others, even a significant cost. Right? Remember the case of cutting off the arm to, uh, of one person to save 10,000 people, 100,000 people from getting a cold. Generally, you can't really do this. But the key thing to note here is that the costs and benefits are, don't accrue to different individuals in this case. From the perspective of the state, from the perspective when we're making the decision, the, the different costs and benefits are costs and benefits to accrue to possible future selves of the same person. Right? It's not like we're going to circumcise you in order to save you know, another you know, 10 people sort of the pain of adult circumcision that they otherwise uh, wouldn't have, wouldn't, wouldn't otherwise would have had to go through. Rather, we're, we don't know how you're going to turn out, and there's a good chance that we're going to help you uh, be by allowing you to avoid adult circumcision, but there's also a small chance that you're going to go to detest the circumcision. But it's the same person that's bearing the costs and benefits in, in all the different scenarios. I think that that's very important. Um, okay, I think I have enough time to talk about uh, the danger of religious alienation. So, in the secular case, um, I think that there's going to be some people who want to be circumcised. Maybe you've, I've convinced you, you're going to go home, you're going to do some, you're not circumcised, you're going to go home, you're going to do some research about um, the dangers of penile cancer, and you're going to say, oh boy, maybe I should actually really be circumcised. 
Um, but maybe you're not going to have the willpower to go through with that, and, uh, and that's certainly a possibility. Uh, but what's at stake for you in that case is a, is a slight increase in uh, a risk of a medical problem. An important medical problem, but a small, uh, you know, very small risk of a medical problem, nevertheless. Um, but in the religious context, I think that the, the problem of a lack of willpower is actually much more important. So I think there's going to be a lot of there's going to be a fair number of people, not not the majority, but a, a, a significant minority of people. Uh, if we forbid child circumcision, there's going to be some people who grow up in, in, as Jews or Muslims and who want to become circumcised but are unable to bring them to do this. And I think that for them, there's going to be a really big problem. I think uh, basically. Uh, um, I think they're going to start, these people might well feel hypocritical participating in religious practice. And again, these are people who want to be circumcised but just can't bring themselves to do it due to a lack of willpower. Um, they might feel uncomfortable pursuing intimate relationships with co-religionists. Um, and I think that this can easily result in, in alienation. So the point I'm trying to make here is, is, in the secular case, what's at stake when you lack willpower to, to do circumcision is not so important. But in the religious case, the, the minority who lacks the willpower to go through with this operation are going to suffer potentially a much higher cost, which is alienation from their um, religious community. So let me just summarize the religious case. Um, I think most, the most important point is that the likelihood that the religious child will choose to become circumcised himself reduces the violations of the interest in self-determination and increases the costs uh, increases the cost that we save the child in terms of avoiding adult circumcision. I think it's a really key issue. And then also I think the consequences of lack of willpower are greater in the case of the religious case. And thus what I would suggest is that on balance, um, actually the balance in the religious case actually tilts. Just looking, just looking at the interests of the child, I think the balance actually tilts in, in favor of allowing um, circumcision, in, in favor of having the circumcision. Uh, even if you didn't believe in any of the religious benefits or anything like that, right? I think just in terms of thinking about what the child is going to do uh, and, how, and how not being circumcised is going to affect them, I think actually the, bene- the, the balance of interests say that actually you should circumcise the child. Um, and, I, and, and I'm sure, I mean, I, if, if there's anything I'll take away from, or I would, I would, you know, I would be certainly stand on, is that it's not unreasonable to think that circumcising the child would actually be in, in his best interest in the religious case. Uh, and so the idea that the, that the state should forbid this practice that's probably in the best interest of the child, but, but at least is not unreasonable to think is in the best interest of the child, I think is really, really uh, problematic. And that's without getting into any of the rights the parents have it, at all. Um, so uh, I, I will consider quickly, and unfortunately I don't have a lot of time to consider this, um, one objection to my argument, uh, which is uh, having to do with female genital cutting. So the reason I'm, I want to make very clear, and I've been, you know, people who've read my, my, the paper that this, this talk is based on, have wanted me to make very clear that I don't think there's a, an equivalence, a medical equivalence, between male circumcision and female genital cutting. The reason I'm raising this objection is because the, if the arguments I've presented are um, compelling, that means that they should not uh, basically forbid us from making illegal female genital cutting. Right. So we're gonna. If, if my arguments sort of hold water, uh, I, we, I should still be able to say no. Female genital cutting is not okay, even if male circumcision uh, is. So why why should we reject? Uh, so here's the objection. Don't my arguments also condone female genital genital cutting? And I, I'm very much against female genital cutting. So that would be a problem for me. But I assume many of you are as well. Um, no, for several reasons. So first of all, let me. I want to emphasize that 
female genital, genital cutting. Uh, there's many forms of it, but, but the, the forms, unless, unless you're talking about just the symbolic forms, uh, all of the major, major forms are much more severe. And many, many, some of them are extremely much more severe um, in terms of uh, violations of bodily integrity, reduction in sexual pleasure, than male circumcision. Uh, also, there's no discernible health benefits that I could find from uh, female genital cutting, and there's actually several important risks, uh, health risks from female genital cutting. Um, and actually, also, in addition, it's less central religiously, and, and again, I'm not so concerned with the religious freedom of the parents, Mike, the reason I bring this up is that I think it makes it far less likely that the female child would undergo this, pro- this practice herself as an adult if the childhood uh, practice is forbidden, and that, again, has important consequences for the calculus of interest. And finally, even if male and female uh, genital uh, cutting, or however you want to call it, uh, were exactly identical, I think that there is a history of oppression of women's sexuality that makes them, the practice much more morally problematic. Uh, so Deborah Satz, uh, who's a philosopher at Stanford, has a really interesting uh, chapter where she argues that male prostitution is not as troubling as female prostitution, although the practices might, even, even if the practices are identical, because of a history of, of oppression of women's sexuality. And I actually buy that argument, and I think that it, it applies here as well. Um, so I think the, the legal prohibition of female genital cutting is perfectly consistent with the arguments made here. So to conclude, um, the legality of circumcision should not be decided by appealing to rights as trumps in the way that the, the German court actually uh, does. Um, although the rights to bodily, bodily integrity and the rights to self-determination may arise in certain contexts, I think that they, I, do, I actually do take those rights seriously in certain contexts, I don't think the interest in bodily integrity and the interest in self-determination of the child rise to the level of rights in the context of circumcision. Um, so instead of appealing to rights and foreclosing the debate, we're going to have to carefully consider the interest of the child instead. Um, I've argued that a slight reduction in sexual pleasure is not obviously harmful. But, you know, is it, is it actually harmful? I think we can have an interesting debate about that. But it's not, it's not unreasonable to think that actually a slight decrease might actually increase a person's flourishing. Um, the interest in, self-deter- in self-determination in the case of circumcision is less compelling than it first appears because the decision is subject to all sorts of psychological biases. The, again, the adult's decision of whether to become circumcised is subject to biases. It's subject to a lack of information, both about the medical benefits and costs, but also, more importantly, about how it will feel. And so because of this, uh, the interest in self-determination is less compelling than it first seems. And so I think the balance of interest in the case of the secular child uh, lies fairly clearly within the realm of reasonable disagreement. And so I don't think it's okay for the state to make the practice illegal. We give parents a lot of leeway in raising their kids, and this seems to me to lie well within the balance of reasonable disagreement. And finally, um, since religious boys are much more likely to choose to become circumcised as adults, infant male circumcision is probably actually in their interest. Uh, all things considered, and, abs- and, and I, I'm perfectly convinced that it's certainly within the realm of reasonable disagreement, and so the state should certainly not outlaw uh, the circumcision of male, of, relig- of, of male infants in the religious case. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I think you've presented us with a number of really interesting arguments, and we have, like I said, about half an hour or a little bit more even for discussion, so I'm um, looking forward to your questions. You know, I mean, my first reaction to the German case was like, this is completely crazy, right? I mean, why is, is anybody prohibiting um, 
um, circumcision. Um, but I think sort of the justification to give for this is, you know, this sort of long historical institutional background and so on. Because if I think about the case, suppose there is this Christian sect, right? Mm -hmm. And they come up with the idea that, you know, tattooing a cross on your left buttock, that's really what identifies us. Okay. Right? Okay. So, you know, that's what we believe in and so on. And they just do this to their young children, mm -hmm. right? Um, and now suppose that there is some research coming out that actually tattoos are pretty good for some, you know, fairly rare diseases, but okay. it, it lowers the incidence. It just okay. happens to be like <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I really would not approve of this. I would say, look, I mean, if you want to get that when you're an adult, that's fine, but you have no business putting crosses on your kids' left buttocks, you know? <laughs> well, uh, but, but wait, so two questions I would ask. One, one is, how different are the costs for an adult to do it relative to a child, right? Because the, one of the key pieces of the argument here is that uh, adult circumcision is significantly more costly, both in terms of risks and in terms of uh, disruptions, etc., to the person than infant circumcision. So I think that the, the, the part of the reason I'm sympathetic with the tattoo example is that actually it seems like there's not going to be really a big difference in terms of when we do it with a child or when we do it as an adult. Um, and the second thing I would, I would ask, I would really wonder whether we thought most... So, so sort of ratchet up the difference in costs between the infant and the adult, and then increase the likelihood that the adult themselves in this sect, you have very good reason to think that, let's say, 95% of them will actually tattoo, get the tattoo itself. So 95% are going to actually go have this much more complicated procedure when they're adults than when they're babies. Um, and I think that you, you, should let the, you should let the parent do it. If you really thought that 95% of these kids will themselves do it, and it's going to be much more costly for them to do it when they're adults, and the 5% who don't do it don't suffer a huge cost themselves. I think if you combine all of those together, I think, I think you, should, you, should allow, um, you should allow the tattoos. Okay, I can see a lot more questions. Um, I think we're the first to raise it. Yeah. Um, complicate the matter even further. Yes. Um, adult circumcision, infant circumcision. What about the in-betweens? Uh, that's are, a good question. There are sects that like to, to um, circumcise at age about seven because the argument they put forward is the, 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 the boy will be conscious of what, ha what happens, the pain will do it good, uh, and we'll, we'll, um, we'll make a party of it uh, to, to, to alleviate the situation. Yeah, you know, I do think that that, that becomes more gray. I, I, I'm more, I mean, you know, so let's say that you, let's, let's take it, let's, let's go to 14, for example, right? Let's, let's go even higher. Some actually, some do it at, at, at the beginning of puberty, right? Uh, and then I become actually a lot more sympathetic to a ban, actually. I mean, again, because for me, a lot of the, the, the key question is going to be, is a child going to do it themselves if you don't, if, if they uh, don't do it, if, if the parents aren't allowed to do it to them when they're young? And the second question is, what's the difference in the costs? And in the case of the, pre, of the pubescent boy, there's not that much difference in costs, really. And so actually, in that case, I'm going to be, very, I'm going to be more sympathetic to the argument that we should forbid it, and let the child decide for himself when he's 18, um, rather than having the parents force the child to do it when he's 13, for example. But just to follow up on the point, um, 
I mean, 14 is also the age where often religious communities regard the person as an adult for the purposes of religion. Right. So in Catholic faith, for instance, when you're 14, you can make the decision whether you really want to be part of that faith or not. Right, right. right. So, and so on that basis, you could say if we have this, um, you know, autonomous decision or the person should make the decisions themselves and for other equivalent decisions we regard 14 as a relevant age then why not in that case? Well I think as, as uh, we as political philosophers right, can stand back from these practices and say well it's nice that your religion thinks that a 13 year old is a man I mean, I, I, I had a bar mitzvah, you know, I, but I, I guess I sort of took it somewhat seriously. Um, but we as a political society are not going to acknowledge that, that, that that's the case, right? We're not, we're not going to let 13 year olds vote just because you think that they are, uh, they're adults, right? Um, but the, the one thing I will, I will say, though, is that I, I don't want to, I think that there's, there's a separate consideration, which is the religious liberty of the parent, um, which I haven't addressed here. So I'm not, I, I, what, I, what I would say to that question is that in terms of my analysis, my analysis in, in terms of the interest of the child would probably come out to say, no, it's not in the interest of the child to have them have a, a circumcision at 13. The, self, the, ver, the various factors that I've discussed change to make that the case. Nevertheless, I think you, I didn't consider the, the question about the, the interest of the parents, and I think that there is a, a, a possible case to make there. Uh, not gonna, I mean, I, I, I'll have you talk more about that, but I just wanted to point that out. Okay. Um, please keep uh, holding up your hands. I think we'll take that question first, and then we'll go around. But I might have, have to ask you to hold up your hands again. Camille, I just follow up something you said at the beginning and ask the question. Did you say that in 2005, 56% of people, uh, boys in the U.S. were circumcised? That's, that's what I, that's yeah. what I found on, on, then on my... Surely the right to look like your one's peers says that everyone should be circumcised as a boy because if there's a majority, firstly. And also, there was a case in New York, um, health department, to say that particularly religious circumcision, they should increase medical protection. What's your opinion on that? Um, so let me take the first... So again, I, didn't, I, I specifically didn't address the issue of... Um, looking like your peers. First of all, I certainly wouldn't say it's a right. I mean, if we think about rights, rights as trumps, we certainly wouldn't think about that. Um, but I have heard that, that people where, where um, uh, Jews and Muslims are a minority uh, do often point to this, to this uh, idea that, you know, the child has an important interest to look like their peers, and this circumcision prevents or, 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 or uh, frustrates that. Again, I think that this, again, falls into the parental prerogative. You, you as a parent, do you think it's important for your child to look like their peers. And if, if you don't think that that's particularly important, and you look at the health consequences, etc., and you reach a, a, a reasoned balance, I don't think that this comes to the level where the state is justified interfering. Uh, in terms of uh, more regulation of the medical, uh, more medical regulations of circumcision, I'm actually, I'm actually for that. I mean, I think that that's, that's, that's a, a, a good idea. I mean, I, I don't know enough about the religious objections to that kind of issue, to, to really come down strongly on it. But my first reaction is, absolutely, it seems like we're not losing out um, very much at all, uh, and yet we're protecting the child, so I'm, I'm all for that. Yeah, um, I could take that rest of the night arguing against your, uh, well, weak and feeble points. Sorry? I'll just concentrate on one thing. Okay. Um, you said earlier about um, uncircumcised, or rather circumcised men, uh, can't compare what sex is like 
with a man who's uncircumcised. Well, that's wrong, because I was circumcised, well, I was mutilated as a child. Um, in the last decade, I've embarked upon a program of uh, non-surgically restoring my foreskin, and I've had some success, but whereas sex used to be okay, it now blows my socks off. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it's what I would say is from the from the research that I've done, and I don't I don't mean to under, undermine the, the the I didn't mean to, to be flippant. Um, um, from the research I've done, the experience varies. Some men report greater sexual pleasure with circumcision. Some report less. Uh, there's not, it's actually quite variable from, from what I've seen in terms of surveys, and I'd be happy to send studies. So, so I've had surgery uh, for circumcision when they've had problems, then obviously sex is going to be improved for them. Well, it, I, I, the, 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 the point, but, but, the, but so I would say again two points. I mean, one is I, I, don't, I, I don't think we can go from one case to saying that for every child, circumcision drastically reduces sexual pleasure. I don't think that the evidence bears that, even with adults, and I think furthermore it's actually quite difficult to say what, what would the counterfactual would be with the infant. The second thing that I would say, so I would, but, I, but again, I, I conceded in my talk that on average we might expect that circumcision might reduce sexual pleasure somewhat. And what I pointed, my, my argument was, look, um, it's not clear to me that a parent like Maimonides who said, actually, we humans, uh, the, 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 the emphasis we put on, on sex is so high relative to other things um, that a slight reduction, a slight reduction in sexual pleasure might actually be a good thing. I'm not so sure that that parent is, should, be, uh, should be deemed unreasonable and basically their justification should be just thrown out, out of hand. I'm not sure that that's so unreasonable, basically. But why were we born with the first foreskin in the first place? Why were we born? Well, that's a very deep theological question. I mean, but 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 surely, but surely, you wouldn't. It's a no-brainer. Well, I mean, there's there's an evolutionary reason for it, but but we're not interested in maximizing our, or at least I'm not interested in maximizing my fitness, having as many children as I possibly can. I'm interested in leading a flourishing life, and I'm not convinced. At least I don't I don't think it's obvious that maximizing, if you if you doubled your sexual pleasure that you would lead a better... that all of us, if we doubled our sexual pleasure in this room relative to other pleasures, and we all all of a sudden just basically abandoned my, my academic pursuits and started going on, on, on one-night stands all the time, that that would be a good thing for me. I mean, I'm not sure that that would happen, but what I'm saying is it's not good to me that a flourishing life is necessarily a life with the maximum amount of sexual pleasure possible. Okay, I can see uh, lots of hands. I'll, I'll try to go roughly in the order which I first saw them, so... It's not actually, by the way. No, probably. I said probably. I don't know. Probably. Yeah, actually, some some boys are not born with a foreskin. Yeah. But yeah. but anyway, sorry. Go ahead. So, and then I think it's a, it's a, it's a big, uh, bigger question of the sexual pleasure. How do we evaluate it? What's the actual sexual pleasure? So during the intercourse or just the, um, the end of intercourse? Or um, do we take a woman into consideration or the partner doesn't have to be heteronormative? 
consideration and also shall we consider female health in this aspect. So I think it's quite um, a bit more complicated. Um, and then um, also you mentioned this um, um, this aspect of um, child being born to a religious family that remains uh, religious throughout their life. So it might be a, a also a, a moral aspect to that uh, if we as parents decide to circumcise our um, our boys. Does it um, does it imply that we have a higher moral obligation to provide them with a religious upbringing? So that last if we have this prerogative to decide on taking off their foreskin. Right. Shouldn't we also be? I'm just saying morally, not legally, obligated to provide them with religious upbringing. I'm not, I'm not sure I understood the last question so much. I mean, uh, I mean, it, it's interesting whose interests count uh, in the calculation. I mean, should we, we should we say, well, women love having sex with with circumcised or uncircumcised men, whichever one, and therefore that should change the balance of our interests. I'm, I'm not, I'm not so sure. I think it's actually a really interesting question. I, I myself am not a utilitarian, so I'm actually really interested, on, really primarily, in the interest of the child himself. Uh, and, and also, so, to finish that, um, if we talk about the best, best interest of the child, then we should really look into medical evidence and also consider whether the uh, circumcision should be more uh, regulated and should be done within the medical pros- uh, profession uh, with anesthesia, which seems to be in the best interest of the child, rather than uh, by mohel. And then in the presentation probably, we, or, or, or discussion, we should also mention the fact that uh, some kids, uh, um, there, there are also side effects and even uh, infants who die as a result of, uh, of complications. Yes. Not a large number per year, it's less than 20 cases, but um, yes, so, so Benatar, so, so I, should, I should say, uh, Benatar and Benatar go through all the medical evidence. Um, I think, the, so, so, and, and they say, they compare basically the number of deaths from these complications from circumcision to the number of deaths from, say, severe penile cancer. And they sort of, their calculations show that, or, and, and you, I'm, not, I'm not in a position to evaluate their, their, their calculations, but their calculations show that on balance, uh, the health benefits slightly outweigh the health dangers of circumcision. Now, um, does that mean that the state has no role to come in and say, no, you can't just have this untrained medical person, uh, if, they're, if they're not trained, you can't have them perform this? I think that actually the state might have a role in that. I mean, maybe, maybe more, I don't know what the actual qualifications are to be a, a mohel, a, a, a ritual circumciser in the Jewish faith. Um, but if you, if you were telling me the state needs to come in and regulate this better, there's a really big problem here, that the, the rates of complication are significantly higher. I'd be quite sympathetic to that, actually. Um, so, yeah, and just one last point about the cleft. I mean, I, I, I'm not so sure what... I mean, the point, the point of the cleft was just to say, look, um, our, the right to bodily integrity by itself d- doesn't seem to prevent us from condoning this operation that really just has, you know... Significant but not huge cosmetic consequences and consequences in terms of not being teased, etc. So if we, if we think that the right to bodily integrity is what's going on here, then it doesn't seem like that jives with our judgment that the cleft operation is actually okay. okay we come up with I think we should move on to the next question because there's lots of other people who, as you can see, who want to ask questions. So um, we'll take your question. Yeah, uh, I just want to ask whether you're aware that the Royal Dutch Medical Association and the whole group of affiliated similar uh, type bodies in, in uh, Holland um, have noted four, and I quote, four serious complications alongside reports of penis amputations, psychological problems <coughs> as a result of circumcision, 
And they concluded, it's very brief, there's no convincing evidence that circumcision is useful or necessary, and, non, and I quote, non-therapeutic circumcision of male minors conflicts with the child's right to autonomy and physical integrity. Right, And that yeah. there are three more countries that have come very similar, mates, very similar, Australia, Sweden, and the UK, and I've got references here, have come to very similar conclusions. So, I mean, I'm, again, I'm not in a position to evaluate the medical evidence. I, my, I, I, think, I think that the Bene- if, if you look at the Benatar and Benatar article, I, think it, I found it quite compelling, actually. I mean, from, from my, I mean, they cite a whole bunch of very reputable-looking studies to me. I'm not a doctor. But I think what's interesting about the comment is that the, the rights to self-determination and to bodily integrity are cited by, both, by, by the, the Dutch, actually, and I did see that. Um, and it's interesting to note, I didn't know that about the other countries, actually. And, and the, the key, one of the key takeaways from my talk, if you take away anything from it, is really that um, bringing up these rights is really importing something that's a little bit different. Uh, a right that an adult has to self-determination is very different than saying the child has a right that we wait until it's an adult. And furthermore, the right that a person has, that they not, we not cut off his arm in order to cure 100,000 people of a cold, is very different from the, from the interest that the child has in it, its bodily integrity. So, but also non-therapeutic and non-reversible. Well, I mean, I, 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 you know, I, 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 again, I think that the, the evidence on penile cancer, and I know that this is sort of strange because I never heard about it before, before I started doing research on this, I think it's really quite convincing if you look at the Benatar article. So I, I'm, but I'm not a doctor, so I'm not in a position to really adjudicate here. So that's why I didn't really address that the first part. Are you? Yes. Is there a doctor in the house? No, no, no. Well, I'm the next best thing. Okay. okay. My name's Richard Duncan. I'm the chairman of a small human rights charity. We're growing rapidly called Genital Autonomy. Okay. And I've spent a lot of time with doctors. The cancer thing, as far as I can make out, is pretty much a myth. But it's not that I want to talk about. But the reason it's a myth is that it's mostly people who have a very poor lifestyle, so lots of poverty, smoking and alcoholism are also seriously implicated in that penile cancer issue. And it's a disease of the middle-aged to old-aged men, so I'd better watch out. Anyway, <laughs> let's get okay. back to the best interests. Okay, please. On this subject, recently in Manchester, a midwife was found guilty of manslaughter after a baby died following a circumcision. He was four weeks old. And his name is Good Luck Codes. Okay, absolutely no luck at all. But be very clear, that's the British courts guilty of manslaughter. Also, in the family courts, the family courts have consistently come down on the side of leaving the child intact, using exactly the best interests test. And the reason they use that test and apply it so thoroughly is that a child who's left intact has a remedy. A child can be significantly altered, irreversibly, has no remedy. And the courts, every time, bang, the gavel comes down, that's it. What about the, what about the maths example that I gave? Um, so, the, the, in what way? The, 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 argument, the, the, the argument is just, I mean, is this maybe... Is you assume that there's no harm and benefit. But that's not a given. No, what I'm, the maths example was, was you, you could say, look, let's just wait. The child has a remedy in the case where we don't teach her maths, basically. Once she's 18, she can decide if she wants to learn maths herself. But, but if we force her to teach maths, then that's irreversible. Now she knows maths. No, no, no. That's not an example because she can easily decide at age 15 to study art and 
literature and history and go on to do nothing to do with maths. Okay, fair enough. It's not irreversible. Right, no, but, but so I, I agree. I think the point that it's, I think that's fair enough. And I think the point that it's irreversible is important. But again, I think that's crucial. It, it is crucial, but again, I think, um, so shall we take the religious case? So in the religious case, again, uh, I, the, the, the key point of the argument is that the cost of waiting until they're an adult. And I think that the point of the, the math example, the reason that I raise it, is that what it's supposed to illustrate is that the cost of allowing the child to wait until they're an adult to have this procedure are significantly higher than the cost of doing it as a child. And furthermore, for the religious children, they're very likely, we're very likely to, to, to maybe, I don't know what the percentage is, it's quite hard to figure out, but maybe around 60-70%, maybe something like that, if we forbid them to do it when they're young, they're very likely to do it themselves anyway when they're adults. And the costs are significantly higher. So I think that there is a way to work the calculations so that you should nevertheless do it. But it should be pointed out that in all the cases I've come across in the family courts, is that it has been in a situation where the child is a child of religious parents. It's never come up as far as I know. There's a secular issue well, in the family court. It's quite possible that they're making a mistake. I mean, the last thing I'll say on this issue is that um, I think there's, um, you know, if you, if you look at the cleft case, or, if, or, or there's also cases where we're thinking about uh, curing deafness in children. There's a variety of things that's possible to do. But like, well, like the cleft case is probably better. Um, where it's irreversible also, right? I mean, the fact that it's irreversible doesn't completely settle the argument. Right? When we still have to very carefully think about, well, what are the differences in the cost? What if you're going to choose to do it anyway as adults, etc.? I, I think the point about irreversibility, but again, I just don't think that it settles the issue. Okay, I think I'd like to um, take some other questions. You've had your hand up for a long time. Thank you. Sorry, well, I'm happy to talk afterwards if people want to continue the discussion. I, I, I recall in your section where you talked about uh, common objections to your argument mentioning that uh, don't your arguments therefore condone female genital cutting. That's right. And you went on to say that no, they don't because X, Y, Z. But you carefully slotted in a disclaimer where you said, except in the case of ritual cutting. No, no, no. Ritual, uh, in the case of symbolic Symbolic, that's right. Sorry. So am I, to t just to be clear, are we to take from that that in the case of symbolic cutting, your <coughs> arguments would condone that? And therefore, from a public policy point of view... Uh, we should allow uh, symbolic female cutting, based on your argument? Well, I don't, I, I think, it, what I would say about symbolic cutting, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm not aware that it's illegal, actually. I think it's sort of a really interesting question. Is it illegal? Yeah, yeah. Symbolic. Anything, a that draws blood. Really? Blood well, that, that's actually quite interesting. But what I would say is, that, is, is there, I didn't know that, I'm not, I'm not an expert on this, but, but what I would say there, I think the arguments, that, the kind of arguments that Deborah Sachs makes about the traditional um, oppression of women's sexuality. And, I, and I, I think those quite seriously. I think that they're quite applicable in this case. Because otherwise, I think it's hard to understand why you, would, um, why you would actually make that illegal, whereas you wouldn't make the, uh, a, a less, it, seem, it seems to me, a less uh, uh, invasive procedure uh, illegal in the male case, actually. So because of gender power relations, your arguments, therefore, aren't condoning FG, sorry, FGC. Uh, in the case of sim symbolic. That's right, and I, I should say I don't know enough, I really just don't know enough about it to really be able to answer that question. I think it's an interesting point. Looking yeah, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. You've had the end of four ones. Yeah. I liked your reasoning. I liked your use of the word cost. 
but I think you were too male-dominated in your argument. Okay. The cost is a bit of blood and a cut and some pain. You're talking about for male circumcision? For male circumcision. Yes. For females, it is enormous and right. horrendously more. Right, right, and right. And we might have a much stronger argument Absolutely. in stopping and curtailing that culture if we would stop the practice with the males. Oh, that, that's, um, that's, an, that's an interesting causal argument. Well, it's, it's an interesting... I mean, it's, a, it's an empirical argument, but I, I, I think that that's actually quite... I would actually be quite resistant to that argument, actually. I mean, you know... But you, I, you didn't consider it, and I think... No, no, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting... It's an interesting, it's an interesting argument, but, but I think that that would be using... If the practice were otherwise justified, but success in that practice would somehow help us... I mean, sure, surely, I mean, let's say that there's a, there's a cult that you want to outlaw, uh, but it's actually, the cult is quite similar to a legitimate religion, right? And you say, well, actually, people, the, the public can't really tell the difference between these two things. So we need to outlaw both the religion and the cult in order to outlaw the cult. I think it's quite problematic, actually, to say that we should do that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that we should never do that, but I think it's quite problematic to say this practice would otherwise be okay, but because we need to outlaw this other practice... Um, we should outlaw this, this, this legitimate practice. So I'm actually quite, I, I'm actually quite hesitant, even if, even if your causal argument were, were established that forbidding male circumcision would allow us to for, better allow us to forbid female circumcision, I still would be quite hesitant to go along with it, actually. Um, I think it's an interesting one that I hadn't considered before, actually. Yes, you, me. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, so, so, okay, let's talk to the um, male circumcision thing. Um, if, with your deferred pain argument, should parents then be allowed to pierce and stud the ears and noses of babies, a bit like the tattoo bottom here, um, on the basis that it's going to be less painful to do later? Well, do we, do, I mean, well, what is, uh, does anybody know the law on this right now? No, there's no prevention at the moment. Is, what's, what's the law, do you know the law on this? The law about piercing, but the law about tattooing is quite clear, not under 18. No, but okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I think again, I think the question, you know, again, the, the question, the question, the question for me, I mean, I do think again, I do think that there is an interest. In, there's always an interest in self-determination uh, that's relevant. I think the question for me are again, really three questions: How likely is the child to to want to do this once they're adults? How, what, what's the difference in the cost between doing it as a child and doing it as an adult? And, and I, for my argument to really work, it has to be a, a significant higher cost of doing it as an adult as opposed to doing it as a child. And then third, I think the, the question is, um, when you think about the decision that the person's making as an adult, how informed is it? How rational is that decision? And those three things, when you, when you think about them, those I think are the core of my argument. And I, you know, I sort of went through the tattoo example before and tried to play around with it in order to, to play around with those factors. So under some specifications of your example, I think that I would be against uh, outlawing the piercings, and under some I would be for outlawing the piercings. It's going to depend on those factors, for me at least. Okay, there's a question in front. Uh, yeah. Oh, but, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I'll take you next. I haven't been ignoring you. <laughs> Lots of people have been ignoring you. About the ears, it's not irreversible because they're going to heal if the person does not want to okay. wear the earrings, so that's kind of not scary. But the cleft part is really what's confusing because the cleft is a very big difference for a child to have, like, uh, uh, if you compare it to the other children of the same age, whereas 
circumcising someone is, make, is like inflicting the change onto their body. So if the cleft case isn't really the fit here because it's actually making the body different, the cleft itself yeah, the, 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 the cleft makes the child's body different. You're saying you're, you're saying but you're saying the cleft is abnormal. Yeah, precisely. I see. So if so, just just to be clear, if if it so some babies are born without foreskin. Right. Yeah, but that's wait, 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 some babies are born without foreskin. So if, if the majority of babies were born without foreskin, then you would be okay with circumcision. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just to be clear. Uh, I mean, I think that, that it's an interesting question about what's normal and what's not, and if that's really doing a ton of work um, in, in, in thinking through this. I mean, I, I, I'd be interested to hear more why it's so important that it, this, is, this is normal and this is not. And why should that be so important for our, our analysis, really? Um, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I mean, I mean, I think there is sort of this locker room issue, right, where the boys sort of like look at each other and some of them are different and that's sort of a, a problem. Um, but I'm not, I'm not so sure like why, why it should be the case that, you know, what's normal for humans actually should be like what determines this permissible or not permissibility of, this, of the practice. I'm happy to talk more about that at the end. Okay, well. Yeah, I'm, I'm not Jewish, but I, I did read somewhere that um, circumcised males are less likely to give cancer of the cervix to women, presumably their wives, and that it's actually Jewish women who have the lowest percentage of cancer of the cervix. Yeah. Again, this is an interesting... I mean, I don't, know, I, I don't know anything about that literature. I mean, it's an interesting question how we should think about the benefits to women of men being circumcised when we decide whether to circumcise them or not. I, I'm actually quite... I mean, if that were the case, I would be somewhat sympathetic. Uh, I don't know if that's the case. I have no way to evaluate that. I, I, I'm, I'm sure there's people... I'm sure there's people in the room who significantly, strongly disagree with that. But I'm going to... Let's, let, let's not get into a medical debate because I'm in no position again to evaluate it. I think... Well, well, let's go in a row. All three of you have... <laughs> I was actually struck by the, uh, the reference to the, uh, the history of women's oppression. I thought that was actually a very interesting argument. I'm not sure I would go and therefore support male prostitution over female prostitution. Mm-hmm. But that suggests another angle on this, which is the history of oppression of children by their parents and society's condoning of it. Uh, I, I, one of my good friends actually was, e- was legally emancipated as a very young child from his very oppressive parents. It's a landmark case in Canada that allowed him to live as a very young kid on his own without his oppressive parents making decisions for him. Mm. But that's a legal landmark. But, but this, to me, seems to smuggle in about a whole long history of letting parents, especially religious parents, make decisions about the future well-being and, and ideology or beliefs or cater to um, the community community, we mean the community of adults, not the community of children, right? Yeah. So to me, that's interesting, especially if you, if you thought that there's no, it makes no difference whether you do it at 14 or whether you wait, or wait until you're 14 or you do it when a child obviously have no say at all in the decision. So I thought if, if you want to slide it down to 14 anyway, why not let the kid make the decision and I suppose let the parents within the reasonable disagreement range Yeah, I mean, I think, so first of all, I wasn't happy with the 14 case as much because I think that the complications become much more similar to the adult case. But I think the question is quite interesting about uh, to what extent we should let parents 
mold their children in various ways, right? I mean, in this, in this, in this case, you know, in the case of circumcision, it's mold them physically, but, in, but of course, you know, my, my, point, my point was, look, parents mold their children in all sorts of ways that we don't interfere with. And you might come back and say, well, we should, we should question that well, practice too. We do, versus uh, in Europe, we don't let, we don't let parents, uh, you know, corporal punish their children. In right. Asia, it's very common. Yeah, it's, 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 I was thinking about the corporal punishment case, actually, before I came to the lecture. It's interesting. I mean, I, do th- I think that the, that the idea that we wouldn't let parents... I mean, part, one thing that's really happening in this argument is that the children of Jewish parents are very likely to be Jewish, and the children of Muslim parents are very likely to grow up to be Muslim. And uh, you might object that the, the state is allowing the parents to basically brainwash their children right into these beliefs. And I just, you know... I think it's a very interesting, really interesting set of questions that some philosophers are, are grappling with. How much autonomy should we give children in terms of deciding their own religion and, uh, and basically protecting them from various things that their parents do to them that may not be even physical, but just you know, in terms of how they educate them. I'm inclined to think that my parents did me a great service by raising me with a religious belief. And I think that if they were forbidden from doing that, um, I would be worse off, actually. So I think that there's, it's, like, it's, a, it's a bit like the math case, I think. I think we have to be careful because there's some things, there's some really important benefits that would be lost. Well, there's also anthropomorphic, I mean, if your parents were really screwed up, you would not be standing here being a lecturer because you did very well in school. That's, that, um, that's true. I mean, so, no, I mean, it's there's, there's costs and benefits. I mean, my friend who's 12 had yeah. very screwed up parents. He had to be emancipated legally so that he could live a flourishing life. Two Last very quick questions. Maybe if you just want to both ask your questions and then you can answer. Sure, them. sure. Yeah, I feel I didn't notice the time yet. Thank you. Yeah, there were so many things you said there. I wanted to pick up on it. It would take too long there tonight. I have to agree with uh, a couple of guys over there. But it's amazing how tenuous some of the points you made there about presenting the practice. Um, one there in particular that really rankled with me was when you said that it's much more dangerous and costly to uh, circumcise adults. How many adult circumcised men have died from circumcision? I'm not aware of the figures. How many have died from circumcision? I don't know the figures. It's got thousands. And the other, one other big thing, that you think it's okay for a man to have less sexual pleasure. Um, from, and, and I've got an article here about uh, <laughs> someone who tells you exactly what it was like that after he was circumcised as an adult and uh, found it much less satisfying. And you think that's okay then? You think it's okay for a man to flourish then in a sexual harmony with his wife after being circumcised as an infant and never having had intact genitalia to enjoy the full pleasure uh, of sex. No, I, yeah. oh, sorry, that's the first question. Let's just hear that question as well, and then we'll have to wrap up. I found a very curious tension between two aspects of what you were doing. Yes, please. Well, one is I, the, the moral, which I, I think is very true, that in these issues, one can't decide them purely on the question of rights. But on the other hand, a very great part of these interests are the medical interests. Absolutely. And so I have to confess that I was very disappointed at your apparent happiness to sort of, well, just look at one survey and not take this into account as deeply as one should, because it is absolutely central. Right. Even if it is the case that when you go through the entire medical literature, that the medical situation is not yet clear, then I think that's what we have to say too. It's not yet clear. Right. And that is, I think, central to the whole issue. 
Okay. Otherwise, if the medical situation is, is not clear, then there's no major distinction between, say, circumcising the foreskin or cutting off a little lobe of the ear or ritual scarification of the cheek as takes place in some societies. Yeah, that's interesting. So let me just say that sum, summarize both of these, both of the questions. So, um, so I'm glad, I'm glad you, you agree with me about the rights issues because that's very important. Um, I didn't focus on the medical literature because certainly because I'm not an expert on it. Um, basically, I, I would be interested to hear if you really think that the balance of because I, and I did read, I did look at a bunch of studies, but my, my, my takeaway from the studies is that there is reasonable disagreement in the medical literature about the effects of circumcision. And because there's reasonable disagreement about the health effects, it's not unreasonable to think that it would be beneficial for the child. And therefore, uh, that's, that was, that's why I don't think we can outlaw it. And to answer the other gentleman's uh, point, again, I think that a, a huge reduction in sexual pleasure and elimination of sexual pleasure would not be... Uh, would not be beneficial to, to people's flourishing at all. Um, what I, my point was that it's not clear to me that it's unreasonable. It's a sort of a very kind of like many caveats. It's not clear that it's unreasonable to think that a slight reduction in sexual pleasure would be would would be against the child's flourishing. Uh, at least the, the point the point that I basically wanted to make is that a reduction in sexual pleasure, which I think happens is extremely bad for some people, um, but on average is, is fairly small, and actually for some people actually increases from the literature that I've looked at, um, is not necessarily a, uh, a sufficient reason to outlaw the practice. Uh, and with that, uh, I, I'll thank you uh, yeah, very much for your questions. Unfortunately, um, we're out of time. I apologize to all of those who didn't get to ask their questions, but thanks for coming, thanks for asking great questions, and thank you, Joseph, for this fascinating talk. And the great